you know, there's a saying that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, in the land of the averages, the man with the approximate probability distribution is king. That is Dr. Sam Savage, an adjunct professor in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. He is also the executive director of probabilitymanagement.org. He is the author of the book, Chanceification, and our topic is also the title of another one of his books, The Flaw of Averages. That's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. My name is Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, the show for business and financial leaders interested in lifelong learning. When I pick guests, I'm biased toward the gaps I have in my knowledge repository. And in my first controllership position, I use tools such as Fuzzy Logic and Evolver, which was Monte Carlo on steroids. Well, I, I didn't use these tools, more like I tried them, but I didn't have someone like Sam Savage to help me with them. And so recently, Sam showed up on my radar. Again, I had already read The Flaw of Averages back in 2015. That's one of his books. And then when I noticed his next book, Chanceification, by the way, you're welcome, Amazon marketers. That's when I reached out to him. And Sam is one of those people, you've got to see him talking. So I hope I do this audio-only conversation justice. And in this chat, we're going to discuss the arithmetic of uncertainty. And don't worry, no stats knowledge is needed. So we started this dialogue with an age-old story. Why did the statistician die in the river? The statistician, the poor guy, drowned in a river that was on average three feet deep. And, and, and you, you, you have to understand, I remember seeing that as, a, as a, an undergrad somewhere, right? But, but how did that tragedy play out? Well, the boss said, how deep is the river? And their assistant said, it varies. And the boss said, give me a number. And the assistant said, well, on average, it's three feet. Right? Well, well, so much for that statistician. I mean, of course, it was nine feet in the middle. And that is an old joke. There's that describes what I call the flaw of averages. If you're going to describe everything in terms of averages, the mistakes you're going to make are just utterly ridiculous. I love listening to you on YouTube. You are fun to listen to. I've already mentioned a, a couple of times behind your back already the past week. I wish you would have been my stats teacher. I would have aced stats had I had someone like you. I just admire your teaching, the way you come across. Do you get that a lot? Well, yeah, but I'll tell you what the history is there. So I started teaching at the University of Chicago Business School in 1974. And at the time, what I really wanted to do was be a folk singer. And so I was uh, trucking up and down Lincoln Avenue in Chicago with my guitar. And um, we were all sitting on the curb at 2 a.m., the other guitarist, right? And the difference is I was going to teach a calculus course the next day. So when um, I started teaching, uh, it was like 
twice a week for an hour and a half. Then I had the opportunity to teach at the downtown business school. That's once a week for three hours, starting at 6.20. Now, these poor students had worked an eight or nine hour day. And now I've got three hours to teach them calculus at the end of a day. So remember, I've been out in the bars learning my performance skills. So my three priorities were keep them awake, keep them awake, and keep them from falling asleep. And I discovered during that time period that my guitar performances, my folk singing performances, I came off like a professor. You know, people were not dancing in the aisles, trust me. But when I taught, I came off more like a performer and nothing gave me more joy. I, I got so, the surprising thing was how fun it is to make people laugh, right? It just is fun. And I'm always looking for the laugh to keep people awake. So you've written the book, The Flawed Averages. Your new book is Chancification. I should say your newest or your newer book is Chancification. I think I'm getting it. If, if you want to get to the punchline, so let's assume we've got this chief executive officer of maybe a $50 million business, and, and th- they want their bottom line to be, we'll say $5 million, a 10% bottom line, 10% of revenue. And my question then is, are you sure, is that the goal for your business? Pick an industry, yeah, 5 million, 10%. Where I get your message, Sam, is, okay, that's your goal. What are the chances that we're going to hit this? And that's what you teach. Did I get that right? That is exactly right. And let me just say that the think of the real estate of words, right? Ooh, I, I wish I owned a or the, right? I wish I owned that, but I did I don't. Because I would I would I would take a dot com or the dot com. Okay. The word chance is in an underdeveloped neighborhood where there are huge opportunities. Let me prove my point. We have something called Chance Calc that we develop at the nonprofit. ChanceCalc.com was $9.95. Okay. Now, I went out and I thought, ooh, it's the age of chance. So the age of chance was dot com was taken. Bronzeage.com, by the way, is $50,000. Chanceage.com was $9.95. I bought it. Okay. I'm doing a bunch of, you know, presentations all the time. Um, I am planning a whole series of conversations around this called Chance Talk. Chancetalk.com was $9.95. What's happened is that we have quantified chance. We've helped to quantify chance by, like, bottling probability like beer. Sure, people had been developing the beer. There's been brewers around for a long time. But we somehow, in the nonprofit, came up with this thing called the SIP math standard for bottling probability. 
And that makes all the difference because now you can have experts bottle the stuff and ship it to the rest of us, right? And that is a huge change for the industry. And I would add to that, if I may, Chance Calc, we're not saying that you have to have a PhD in statistics or data science. It's a matter of here's the concept which you teach very simply, again, for people like me. Now it's a matter of opening up Excel, no macros, no code. Here's how to get the data set up, push a button. That's the only thing you have to know technically. So we're not talking. You have to learn a whole new language, right? Right, right. In fact, let's go further than that. Further than that. And by the way, there are some macros to create the model, but once you've created the model, you can share it with a billion of your closest friends. You can use it in a skiff in the military. I mean, it's just an itself. But I'm going to describe the entire mechanism of, of, of how it works. So let's do it with dice. Oh, in fact, in fact, let me give you a definition of what we're talking about. I'm going to use the term the arithmetic of uncertainty. Okay. By the way, so, I'm going to steal your arithmetic. language. I'm going to steal your language. That's a green word or a green term. Are you? Pre- I, I've I've done my homework. That's a green term, right? Instead of red. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, and we'll we'll, we'll get to that. But you brought up red words. So, the arithmetic of uncertainty means doing arithmetic with uncertain things, like next month's sales, the price of cotton, the whatever. So. If I told you what the mathematicians call the arithmetic of uncertainty, it would trigger what's known as post-traumatic statistics disorder or PTSD. And in fact, as you well know, in the flaw of averages, I define a word that would trigger post-traumatic statistics disorder as a red word, right? And we're not going to use them. So the arithmetic of uncertainty, let me just tell you what it means, where arithmetic is going to tell you that X plus Y equals Z. The arithmetic of uncertainty says, what do you want Z to be? Here are your chances. Oh, you want 5 billion revenues? Here are your chances. And now let me explain why you do not need to know any statistics to do this. And to do it, I'm going to start with dice. So imagine I have a die. And uh, I know we're on the radio, but I'll, I'll hold one up so that I can be thinking that I'm holding yes. up a die. You Now my voice reflects the fact that I'm holding up a die. And, he is. and I don't know anything about dice, but what I'm interested in is what's the chance? I'd like the number to be greater than two, right? But I don't know anything about dice. Fine. I will roll the die 10,000 times, right? And then in Excel, that's very easy to do, by the way. And then I will simply use a count if I'll count the number of times it was greater than two, and I'll divide it by 10,000, and that's the chance it's greater than two. That is the only concept we're using. Now, the beauty of the SIP math standard, which is the way to bottle probability, 
is that it's auditable. So that you can say, well, that's a black box because now we're talking about sales. No, no, no. We got 10,000 demand numbers for the new product. They're all there. They're all auditable. You can look at, e- at any one of them and then you, you run those 10,000 numbers for the demand of the product. You run it through the warehousing costs and the labor costs, all the other things you have to take out of it. What comes out the other end is your net revenue. And you got 10,000 of those. And you're looking down the net revenue and you're saying, you know what? We didn't average five, the five billion that I wanted. You know, we averaged four billion. That's a shock. Well, that's probably the flaw of averages. Somewhere in your model, you had a statistician trying to cross a river that was on average three feet deep, you know? So Number one, our average, because I just average up the revenues. I just put them in a column in Excel and I type the average command at the bottom. But I lost money 10% of the time. But now, and how do I do that? Well, count if the profit is negative, right? Where the profit is the revenue minus your cost. Just count if. Well, I not only know it's a 10% chance. But that means that on 1,000 of the 10,000 trials, it happened. And I can go look at those individually. It's like, you know, forensic accounting. Oh, my gosh. On this trial, my supplier went bankrupt and couldn't supply. On this trial, the price dropped to whatever. On this trial... You know, someone invented a perpetual motion machine, which means we don't need automobiles anymore. I, I, whatever it is, you can audit all that stuff. And I didn't use any red words. Counting, that's not red. Dividing by 10,000, that's not red. The, the, those are the only concepts we use, right? And I think the reason that I describe it in these simple terms is that I, I I mentioned earlier, my father was a famous statistician. I learned a lot of this at the dinner table. But the only thing that, and he worked with Milton Friedman and other famous people, the only thing our academic careers have in common is that we both flunked out of the University of Michigan. And when I flunked out, I raced a sports car. And to race a sports car, I had to learn how to be a mechanic. And I really believe that the human capital I picked up being a mechanic in my late teens, right, is where all my intellectual flow comes from. Not all of it. I built model airplanes earlier, right? And I also played guitar. And I started playing guitar when I was a junior in high school because my English teacher told me that I was flunking English and there there wasn't much I could do about it. If I really worked my butt off, I might get a D by the second semester. But I discovered that if I played my guitar, I got music right away. And that was much more satisfying than working my butt off to get a D. So those two things, let's put building model airplanes and being a sports car mechanic in one category. Playing guitar in the other category. So playing guitar had to do with performing. and Building stuff had to do with what I do with spreadsheets. So that's sort of where my intellectual capital comes from. We'll be right back. 
Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So you have this web project with 10 teams. So 10 teams are working on a page. So there's 10 pages to the website, 10 teams. What are the chance? Oh, and, and all of them on average get it done. And how many, is it six weeks on average? Let's say six weeks. Six, Let's say six weeks. They all get done. It's not your first, not your first rodeo. Exactly. You, you've been watching it. So the, the question then is, what are the odds of the project getting done in six weeks? And everybody, we're talking highly educated people that get this answer wrong. I'm going to let you take over. What okay, is the sure. answer? So what is the answer? Is, well, first of all, what is, what is the, ty- what's the typical answer? And then what's the right answer? Yeah, yeah, let, let's do that. Let's do that. So let, 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 let's define it really precisely. I got my 10 teams, each working on their own page. You do not go live until the last of the 10 teams is done, right? Again, not our first rodeo. Each team averages six weeks. Great. So what's the chance we're done in six weeks? And answers are all over the map, but the most common one is a 50-50 chance of being done in six weeks. Right. Now, the correct answer is one in a thousand. And by the way, when you're dealing with uncertainty, like horseshoes and hand grenades, close counts. Okay. We probably should wait till my dog is done barking here. No, let, let him or her bark. I love it. Like horseshoes and hand grenades, close counts. And that's one of the things you've got to learn to live with. If you put in six weeks, then you think you if you just use the average of six weeks, then you you think you're going to be done in six weeks. Right. One chance in a thousand of being done in six weeks. I'll explain why in a second. No, I'll explain it now. Imagine that each team flipped a coin just randomly. Heads is less than six weeks. Tails is greater than six weeks. Then the only way all 10 teams are done in six weeks is by flipping 10 heads in a row. That's actually one in 1,024. But what I want to point out is that if the chance is one in 1,000 and you're saying it's going to be six weeks, or even if you're saying it's a 50-50 chance of six weeks, that is not close enough even for government work. And I just want to follow up too. You've explained it the way a, way a fifth grader could understand this concept, right? Exactly. Well, I want to hit a few terms. So again, we're kind of easing into this because I, w- I want to get to Monte yeah. Carlo in a bit. Uh, I want to get into some of your uh, tools that you sell on the nonprofit website. So I just want to hit up a few terms before we get started. And I'm going to bounce around here a little bit. Uh, I can't remember yeah. if this is in the flaw of averages. I think it may be in chance of occasion. Uh, you brought up 
in chapter six or seven, the risk matrix. And I thought, crap, I've built a lot of these. And what I'm talking about, the three by three grid. And and I do work a lot with risk management. I have some great insurance, commercial insurance people I work with. And so these three by three grids, it's like, yeah, this makes sense. But then when I read your chapter, I thought, oh, crap, I'm going to quit using risk matrices. They're done. Explain to me why I'm right of not using risk matrices ever again. And by the way, you, you could create a matrix that made sense. But that would be that would involve probably running a simulation first. Let's start out with a basic risk matrix idea. I've got like the columns are which, which we we got to picture this thing in front of us. So we've got like likely, medium likely, and not likely kind of in one. Is that going to be on the on the vertical? And then we've got you know uh, not bad, bad, and really bad. Yes. And we've got all this thing filled out. Okay, okay. So here's the first disaster. Oh, and we color the ones in the upper right red, red, right? And they're green. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Is that the only risk you have? Oh, wait a minute. You have multiple risks. Oh, how do I add together an orange from one risk matrix and a yellow with another one? You can't do arithmetic with those things. You cannot calculate with them. It's just touchy-feely. Another way to describe what we have done at the nonprofit is that we have done for uncertainty what Hindu-Arabic numerals did for numbers. I'm telling you, before Fibonacci brought Hindu-Arabic numerals to Italy in 1199, arithmetic was very, very difficult. I cannot imagine doing long-form division with Roman numerals. I don't get that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I've got a, I've got a very short PG-13 riff around that, if you'd like me to do that. Go you ahead. Decide, Go ahead. You, you like. Okay. okay. And I say it's PG-13 because like the Martian movie, the movie, The Martian, right? Nothing worse than that. Okay. So what did Fibonacci bring to Italy in 1199? Absolutely nothing not a zilch, zero. They did not have zero in Italy in 1198. And you think you think math is hard with Roman numerals? Yeah, try it without zero. It's just like it's nuts. So he's trucking around Italy in 1199. And by the way, his dad was a diplomat or a businessman. He learned Hindu Arabic numerals in Algeria with the Arab mathematicians who were the leading mathematicians of the day, right? So he comes back with Hindu Arabic numerals, which include zero, by the way. And he's walking around saying, I got this great new way to communicate and calculate numbers. And, you know, 80% of the population says, what's a number? This is Italy in 1199, right? But the banking regulators and the accountants and the money changers, they know what numbers are. And they say, can't you see we're busy? We've only got six days to add up this column of Roman numerals. And so Fibonacci says, but my way is so much faster. And they say, 
fuck you. We bill by the hour. And then he says, and then he says, but my way is so much more transparent. And they say, and the horse you rode in on, why do you think our rates are so high? <laughs> so we, we we have run into much of this resistance, but that washed away about eight or nine years ago when Excel became powerful enough, like, okay, now we've got a billion potential users, right? So, so back to the arithmetic of uncertainty. The Arabic numerals are, think of them as columns of 10,000 die rolls. The element of the risk matrix is a red square <laughs> It's likely and it's bad. <laughs> okay. What if I have two of those? I don't know. Twice as likely, twice as bad. You can't do arithmetic with those. And what I want to show you now is that the arithmetic of uncertainty is not obvious and you can't do it in your head. So what I'm going to do is instead of a, an element of risk matrix, I've got 10,000 die rolls. Okay. And they represent, oh, the risk. If if I get a six, these are like bad things that could happen. Okay. If I roll a six, this represents the revenues of one division. Actually, whoops, the cost. This is some liability. If I get a six, that division goes bankrupt. All right? But that's very clear now. If I count all the sixes out of 10,000 rolls, one six is going to be sixes. That's my chance of going bankrupt. Okay. Now I have two divisions, two risks. So that one chance of six of going bankrupt, that's probably a red square in your damn matrix, right? Okay. Oh, but now I have two such divisions. Oh my gosh. If the chance of one division going bankrupt is one sixth, then what? The chance of two divisions going bankrupt is two sixths? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's do the arithmetic of uncertainty. Because I can survive one one division going bankrupt. I can't survive two. So now I have two columns of die rolls, 10,000 along, right? I can do arithmetic with them. I add them into a third column. The only way both divisions go bankrupt is if I get a 12. Well, you get all the numbers between 2 and 12 when you add two dice together. But those aren't equally likely. See, one through six are equally likely. But when I add the two dice together, oh my gosh, there's only one way to get a two. There's only one way to get a 12. I have to roll two sixes. How many ways can I get a seven? A whole bunch of ways. A one and a six, a six and one, a two and a five, a five and two, a three and a four. Right. <laughs> We're diversified. And the diversification, you've used that word, but now you can really see it with dice. and. That's almost all we do, except you replace the dice with things that statistical experts have come up with and which are justified, and they're smarter than you or I, and you got three to choose from, so you could try all three and see how they work out, right? Exactly. That's, that's basically what we're doing. And the risk matrix, you can't do math with. I think it's time for probability management. We need strong literacy with probability management, even in small firms. And again, I'm speaking to the choir. I'm not 
really asking a yeah. good question, yeah. but I still believe that probability management is something that needs to be taught even in business 101. Concur? Yes. It, it, it does. First, let me define the terms. Yes, please. Well, first, let me say, by the way, I have a Stanford edX course on probability management. But what does it even mean? So I use the term because I like the ring, but but there, it really does mean something. It's a discipline now. It means representing uncertainty as data. Data is a plural. So data that obey both the laws of arithmetic and the laws of probability. And so I represent the, 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 the die as 10,000 die rolls. I represent another die as 10,000 die rolls. If I want to know the uncertainty of the sum of two dice, I add the two columns together. And, oh, but now the laws of probability. There's only one word you need in probability, chance. Right. The word probability distribution my definition is nine syllables that trigger PTSD. Why? When you have the one syllable chance. So you add two dice together. What's the chance it's greater than, than eight? Count if greater than eight divided by 10,000. It's always, that's the only form you have to remember. And I do want to point out, you mentioned Monte Carlo simulation. And Monte Carlo simulation means... Having a computer roll the dice for you <laughs> or or perform other random, you know, things. And we can easily talk about that. So, for example, another random thing besides rolling a die is spinning a game board spinner. Say it goes between zero and one. Right. But so so it, it just so people know, it came out of the Manhattan Project. And. It was called Monte Carlo because it was that was a secret code name. But, you know, Monte Carlo is where the giant gambling casino is. And it was okay. It's like rolling the dice. And so we'll call it Monte Carlo. And that was 1947, actually. You know, so but what it means. Oh, so what's different about probability management is. In the past, Monte Carlo would have a device that rolled the dice. (laughs) No. We roll them and store them as data, which means you can have experts rolling them and the rest of us using them. Before we jump into Monte Carlo, Sam, do we need to mention just briefly step back 10,000 samples versus 1,000 versus 100? 100, I know I'm being, yeah, si- yeah. I, I'm being silly yeah, when yeah, I say yeah. 100, but why 10,000? No, no, you're not being silly. You're not being silly. Let, let's discuss that. So we've talked about the statistician who drowns in the river that is on average three feet deep. But here's a more sobering example of the flaw of averages. Consider a drunk wandering back and forth on a two-lane busy highway. And I'm going to tell you his average position is the center line. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, At his average position, he's going to be alive. Yeah, but on average, he's dead. And how many samples do you have to take? So if you if you take someone, if you photograph the drunk, you wait patiently till he's on the center line and standing moderately upright, take a photograph of him, that's the average. You send that to all the people in the meeting and say, oh, well, he's okay. 
you take a very short video clip, some little TikTok video, you're instantly going to know this guy is dead. So frankly, when I start out thinking about these things, I start out with two samples. I say, what if he's to the left? Two, not 10,000. Two, what if he's to the left of the center line? Oh, he's dead. What if he's to the right of the center line? Oh, he's dead. <laughs> if you want to get fancy, we'll do three. Okay, left of the center line, he's dead. On the center line, he's alive. Left of the center line, right of the center line, he's dead. Okay, well, maybe he has one chance in three of being alive. Like horseshoes and hand grenades, close counts. But you show me the photograph of the guy frozen to the center line. That's, you know, that's just like telling a huge black lie. If you lie a little bit about how drunk he is, but show me the video. Oh, it's not as bad as it looks. His, his alcohol content isn't that high. You know, no. As soon as I see the video, I know we got an issue here, right? And, and so... Having the wrong distribution is not a big deal. See, the, here, why does the boss say, give me a number? We've been through this, right? Well, when is that project going to be done? You know, give me a number. Well, the boss is anal retentive. What can I say? I mean, you know, don't blame me. Okay, I, give me a number. Then, as soon as you start being probabilistic, the boss is going to say, well, Give me the exact chance to 15 decimal places. No, it's like horseshoes and hand grenades. You know, once we're talking chance, I've gotten your mind around this issue. And so, you know, there's a saying that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, in the land of the averages, the man with the approximate probability distribution is king. You don't have to get it exactly right. And Sam, that leads to my next question. We can now introduce another concept, scenario probability management. For example, what are the odds if the drunk lives if he crosses, say, at 2 in the morning instead of, say, 5 p.m.? Mark, you know what? That, that is a profound point because you don't need to pick one opinion on the probability distribution. It's data. Roll this one in roll this one in, roll this one in. What you're going to see is call an ambulance for the drunk. I don't care which one we use, right? Call an ambulance. You See, what we're talking about here is making chance-informed decisions. If your decision is based on the average, oh, the project will be done in six weeks. Well, actually, there's one chance in a thousand it'll be done in six weeks. Okay. Oh, the drunk will be alive. Well, I doubt it. You're, you, you are going to make different decisions. It's all really about making decisions. And the decisions need you to take chance into account. I, I've got a wonderful little story. Hey, I've got time. There was this incredible example of the flaw of averages that is taught at the Naval Postgraduate School. The Naval Postgraduate School is the most wonderful place in Monterey, California, where they teach military OR. So in, in November, I, th I think, of 1979, um, the Iranians took like 52 Americans hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They held them for 450 days or something. 
And like five months into this thing, things went from bad to worse when the U.S. launched a rescue mission called Operation Eagle Claw. It ended in tragedy with a fiery collision in the desert while refueling. Um, and eight servicemen were killed. I mean, it was just like, this was like horrible. Now, I learned recently that the mission had been aborted even before the fatal accident. Why? The planners had not taken chance into account. So it went like this. I learned this from friends at the Naval Postgraduate School, by the way. Um, so they needed six helicopters to complete the mission. They knew that. And the aircraft were only 75% dependable. Well, let's see. 75% of eight is six. So they sent eight. Right. That gives them an average of six helicopters, but not a guarantee of six helicopters. And 300 years earlier, a Swiss named Jacob Bernoulli had worked out a formula that would have shown them that they had one chance in three of having insufficient helicopters for the most important military mission since World War II. They put that, that's like rolling either a one or a two on a die. So <laughs> if they'd taken chance with an account, they would have sent more than eight. And in fact, in like 2015, Jimmy Carter was asked about his biggest regret as uh, from his presidency. He said, we should have sent more helicopters. There it is. Now, they teach that as a poster child of the flaw of averages. That was not chance-informed decision-making. That was chance-impaired decision-making. Chance calc is a light bulb that illuminates chance-informed decisions, okay? The SIPMath tools came first because really we, we didn't, the evolution is such. I had that idea in my office 25 years ago about, oh, we should be distributing probability distributions. No, it's taken this long to really make it happen and, and in teamwork with some other very smart people. The SIPMath tools, are like a Honda generator. Oh, good, you can generate your own electricity. Are you sure you want to learn how to do that? <laughs> do I need 60 cycles AC? Do I need 12 volts DC? Don't, don't start with that. The thing about chance calc is that someone else has to generate the electricity. And we have samples of that on our website. There's a free version of it. Just get the free version. Or you can come to one of my webinars and get the, you know, even the, the regular version is, is like 75 bucks. But, but, but you're not going to buy your way to knowledge. You have to learn your way to knowledge. I will give you an, another example. So the free version of Chance Calc is great, but go through the tutorial. There's a tutorial that gives you a bunch of different chance informed decisions. There is electricity that comes on files on the hard drive. There's electricity you can plug in on the web. But here's another analogy for you. A big government agency came to me saying, we spent a whole bunch of money on fancy simulation software, and we still don't understand the arithmetic of uncertainty. Imagine it was straight arithmetic. And they were asking for a quote on our tools. 
imagine, Mark, you don't know arithmetic and you want to learn arithmetic. You come to me, you say, Sam, I already bought a hundred of the best pencils I can find and I still can't do arithmetic. Would you give me a quote on your pencils? I'm saying, Mark, I don't think you get it. It's not the pencils. It's the Hindu Arabic numerals you're going to have to learn. And then you're going to have to learn the arithmetic. Of uns- right? So chance calc does the arithmetic for you. You just say, well, I purchased all thousand of these things. Here's the demand for, you know, discontinued sweatshirts, <laughs> you know, boom, for come from, came from, zone. oh, what's, how much profit will I make on average? What's the chance I'll make 10,000 bucks? What's the chance I'll make 5,000 bucks? What's the chance I'll lose money? All those become a couple keystrokes away from you. So don't look at the others. Oh, but let's put it this way. So where electrification replaces systems that run on fossil fuels with those that run on electricity, chanceification replaces calculations that run on single numbers with those that run on probabilities. And everyone in your organization needs to know about chanceification. I would love to talk to your CEO. Yeah, but I'd like to talk to your CFO. I'd like to, like to talk to your IT head, right? I'd like to talk to your statisticians a lot because what we're going to do is provide the 60 cycle AC current standard so your statisticians can produce stuff that doesn't electrocute people and kill them, which is what's happening now. People take one look and they, oh my God, it's PT. No. So your statisticians, you can leverage their stuff all the way up to the CEO's office. But that involves getting into the organization at multiple levels. Sam, which book do we read first? Do we read The Flaw of Averages first or Chanceification? Number one, you start with Chanceification. Number two, if you go to flawofaverages.com and go, there's a, there's a menu on the right that says books. John Wiley, the publisher of The Flaw of Averages, is offering a 30% discount for people who buy Chanceification on our webpage. So you have to buy it there, but it goes straight to Amazon Kindle, right? But there's a code there for buying the flaw of averages for 30% off. So my recommendation is this. You want both. You definitely do not start reading the flaw of averages cover to cover. In Chanceification, we call out the sections of flaw of averages every place. If you want to dig deeper, read this little section of the flaw of averages. And so I do think it's very useful to have uh, it's very much, first of all, it's meant to be a fun book too, but chanceification requires really sort of zero understanding of statistics. But there'll be things where you're going to want to convince yourself, and there the flaw of averages is is really useful. So, it, it, you know, it's a little bit like, I mean, I, I use this analogy. If the flaw of averages were a bacterial disease, then the first book identified the disease. The second book is about penicillin. But when you're administering penicillin, you know, you do want to know more about how the disease displays itself, right? I mean, so they, they are both important and they're very, very complementary. But, but definitely, I would not start with the flaw of averages. I would start with chanceification. And then if you get it at that one webpage, you can go to that webpage and just the special offer from John Wiley is there to get the soft cover of, of, uh, of the flaw of averages.
Sam, I'm not going to let you off the hook. We ask this of every author. What are some of your favorite books? So that's that, that turns out to be a really loaded question. First of all, I, I mentioned before the show that in 1950, uh, I spent the year when I was like five and six in Paris. My dad actually had a fellowship and we visited the, you know, the D-Day landing sites and things like that. Um, and I, my parents sent me to a French school. So when I came back to the United States, all my second grade cohorts had learned how to read and write. And I knew a few French phonemes. <laughs> I didn't speak, I spoke a little French, didn't learn how to read and write. So I, I read and write at about a fourth grade level, but the, so I don't read a lot, but my favorite books are just brilliant stars in what I've read. Okay. They are. The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Okay. And in fact, some I'm going to write an, a, an essay on that because Richard Dawkins discusses evolution from a very basic level. And he then went on to become like this world-class atheist. So my, my little essay is going to be, I was an atheist until I read Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Or maybe you should be, I understood God when I read, and this is not detract from his book at all. Brilliant, brilliant book. He invented words like memes and stuff. Wonderful book. I recommend it for everyone. Okay. Another book. Uh, I love airplanes. I used to fly. The Right Stuff. Not the movie. The book. Blew me away. And I'm really interested in World War II history. And I read The History of World War II by Winston Churchill. Now, that's thousands of pages, it's like a five-volume book. I read it at twice the speed of the war. That is, it took me two and a half years. That is the most amazing book I've ever read. On one page, Stalin has just insulted the King of England, and Churchill has to respond to that. Two pages on, He's discussing the technical details of the V2 rocket engine. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's a lot of bandwidth in that book. And so there you have it. And, and in terms of, oh, in terms of like favorite statistics books, none. You can't learn statistics from a book. <laughs> Sam, this has been remarkable. You have a quick, a smart, and a beautiful mind and love the way you simplify these concepts. Thank you. This has been a blast. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. His name is Dr. Sam Savage. You can check out his work and software at probabilitymanagement.org. Again, his books are chanceification and the flaw of averages. And when you have a chance, do a search on him on YouTube. I mean, he is a great teacher. And the best word I can think to describe him is demonstrative, in addition to his witty intelligence. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf.